0: you can grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me just um, make mention, I didn't mention this when Miles is up here, but this is not Miles' last Sunday. Uh, he will be starting uh, the first week of June, so we don't have that much more time with him, but uh, we do have him for a little bit longer. Um, so, just wanted to make sure you know this is not a formal send-off. We will make sure we do that and, um, and really try to honor him and pray for him and celebrate what God has done uh, through him here. A few weeks back, I uh, I preached a message as a follow-up to um, the first message that we preached through on Romans 13, 1 through 7. And in that message, one of the the main points, it was the first point in the message, actually, we we looked at the tension between some of the things we have to wrestle through in this life, and and one of the tensions we looked at was discussion and disagreement. And while there are some slight uh, differences, this sermon is really a reiteration, but more than that, it's an expansion on that one point. Paul dedicates quite a bit of time to discussing this idea of disagreeing and the potential for disunity, and he does so here in our passage and all the way into the middle of chapter 15. He takes a huge chunk of space to talk about how believers can end up disagreeing and differing But he wants to make sure that we are not dividing. It seems that the the church has always had disagreements. You just have to start at the New Testament, and you can begin to read through, and you can see that very quickly disagreements were popping up in the life of the early church. And if you read through church history, you know that The church history is full of all kinds of disputes and disagreements and and divisions and schisms and problems. The church always has disagreements, they've always been present, and as a result, there is always the potential for division and for destruction. The church is made up of a great variety of people. People from all different kinds of cultures, backgrounds, careers, educations, which lead to a a great variety of perspectives and opinions and convictions. And wherever you have a group of people with differing opinions, it's, it's beautiful, but it's difficult. Because we differ, it means we will have difficulty. But you see, it's God's design that the church be diverse. We are supposed to be a people made up uh, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. We're supposed to be a people of all different kinds of backgrounds, with all different kinds of perspectives. It's one of the things that displays the beauty of God's saving grace and saving purposes. He takes a bunch of people who, who in most normal contexts, wouldn't get along and wouldn't be friends, and he just mashes them all together and says, you're now a family. But one of the things we need to realize is that every single one of us brings something to the table when we join the community of faith, when we join into the people of God, when we join into the local church. We bring things from our cultural backgrounds, from our upbringings, from our experiences. We bring both blessings and we bring baggage. We bring strengths and we bring weaknesses. And that means that living in a diverse community will come inevitably with unique challenges. And the question that we need to wrestle with is this, how do we love Jesus and live out this life together as the family of God without killing each other? All right, that's a little extreme. How do we differ with one another without destroying one another? How do we disagree with one another without dividing what God is seeking to unite? Paul is calling for us to be a community of truth and grace that fights for unity amidst diversity. Let's read in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Paul says this. He says, "'As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another?' It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains abstains in honor to, uh, of the Lord and gives thanks to God, for no one of us, for none of us, excuse me, lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living We're going to look at three, three points in just a minute, but I have a bit of an extended introduction that's going to deal a little bit with this text and get us into the text, I think, in a more helpful way. One of the fascinating things as we look at what Paul does here is that he's, he's now moving from more of the theological into the practical areas of life. You see, before this, in in the first 11, 12, and even 13 chapters, he hasn't addressed any specific issue in the life of the church. This is the first time he gets into an actual specific issue, at least in a very overt, blatant way. Now, one of the things he has done is he has indicated that there is a real struggle in the church. This is true if you read back through the book of Acts and even like the book of Galatians, for example. There's a real struggle taking place between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the early church... As Jews were being saved out of Judaism, out from the old covenant into the new, and Gentiles were being saved, they had such radically different worldviews and perspectives that it was very difficult to figure out how they were supposed to mesh together. How do we get along together? How do we operate together? And in many ways, that is the backdrop of what's taking place in Romans chapter 14. There is the Jewish-Gentile kind of reality that is on display here, and we see that in just a moment as he deals with, with the actual issues that they're struggling through. And what he does is he draws on two potential issues, or issues, excuse me, that could potentially divide and destroy the unity of the church. And in many regards, this is a a bit of a test case for us. As we look at this, we we can see how these deep theological truths impact how we live on the day-to-day with one another. That's what He's after. And what we learn as we, we look at this is that this is not easy. It's not always easy in the body of Christ. And over the next three sections of Scripture, we're going to look at at the first section today, and in the coming weeks, we're going to look at the next two, the rest of chapter 14, and in the beginning of chapter 15, he's going to address this issue. He's going to deal with three particular ways that we, we deal with the potential for division in the family of God. So he's going to look first in this passage at our attitudes. That's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. Our attitudes that we need to keep in check and make sure resemble the right attitudes whenever we face the potential to divide and disagree. Then he's going to deal in our next section with our actions, how we behave, and and the behaviors that can cause friction and division and really disrupt the unity in the family of God. And then finally in chapter 15, we're going to deal with our aim. What is our primary goal? What's the objective that we always keep before us so that we can continue to keep unity in the family of God? Now, it's it's important to just address this out the gates. What Paul is doing here is is he's addressing secondary issues. We need to understand that Paul has already made clear that, that the essentials are things that we cannot disagree on, we cannot differ on. There are certain cardinal doctrines, things that must be believed in order, listen, to produce the kind of unity that God desires in His church. We can't differ on the essentials. You say, well, what are the essentials? Well, in some regards, it's not been exhaustive, but Paul has walked us through a lot of the key essentials in chapters 1 through 11, right? He's gotten into the theology. He's gotten into some core Christian doctrines. He's talked about the the sinfulness of all humanity, the nature of sin that keeps us separated from God. He's talked to us about how the gospel is the only solution. He's talked to us about the reality that we must be made right with God, we must be justified In other words, we we can't climb our way to God. God had to come for us. He had to pay the price for our sins. He's talked to us about all the details of the gospel. He had to deal with the penalty we deserved in the cross. He had to rise victoriously from the grave. And now, as a result, he talked about the Christian life. We're now, as a result of having faith in Jesus Christ, dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. He's talked about the power of the Spirit of God that now resides within us, that enables us to continue to grow in sanctification in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And these are the truths that ultimately unite us into one body and one family. And so what he's doing here, he's not getting rid of truth, but he's unifying us around the right truth, the truth of the gospel, the things that must be believed in order to be saved. Now, listen, the reason why... Divisions often happen in the Christian church is because Christianity is a deeply convictional religion. we, we, We are convictional people by nature of the very faith that we hold. It requires conviction about what is actually true, about what actually saves, about how to actually live and be pleasing to God. We believe that core doctrines are foundational and life-giving. The church, historically, has been a creedal or a confessional institution. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean is this, that the church has always, all through the history of the church, even beginning in the New Testament, we see glimpses of this. The church has always been creedal. They've had a creed or a confession that must be acknowledged and embraced in order to be considered orthodox and of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That the creeds and the confessions of the church, listen, they're not inconsequential. We don't throw those away and say they have no value. Those are the things that have helped to keep the church tethered to the truth throughout the centuries of the church. And here at Redemption, we have non-negotiables. We have non-negotiables. You can read about them in our statement of faith. There are things that we believe are non-negotiable or essential. And we believe these things provide the foundation for our unity. There are essentials, but let me say this, there are non-essentials. There are things, there are beliefs that are not as essential as other beliefs. I love what John Stott says, the commentator. Uh, He says this, he says, we must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of essential and make them the test of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship, nor must we marginalize fundamental theological or moral questions as if they were only cultural or of no great importance. Paul distinguishes between these things, and so should we. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, there are things things that are vital and essential and we don't do away with. They're critical for the foundation. And then there are things that are non-essential, and we need to guard against elevating those secondary things into a primary position. That, this and that, is when the church gets into big trouble. But when you look at this text that we've already read, there is a fight going on here. There's tension. There's a bit of a battle taking place. But who's the the fight between? Here's, we're going to get into the text here, okay? Well, he, he talks about it in the first few verses there, doesn't he? He describes them as the weak and the strong. These are the two categories of people that exist in the church. The weak, he calls them. Now, weak here is not a derogatory term. It's not an insult. You say, well, how are they weak? Well, they're weak in faith not their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're weak in conviction, in conviction about what is acceptable in terms of Christian belief and behavior. And this can happen for a variety of reasons. There are always weak people in the church, people who don't necessarily know what a believer should do, is allowed to do, is free to do, Oftentimes this happens with new believers, people who come into the faith. They're just simply immature. They just don't know any better. They're they're baby Christians. They're trying to figure it out. Sometimes people have been in the church a long time, but they're weak, and that's simply because they're untaught. They've never really been taught the, the, the truths of Scripture. They've never really had to think very deeply about the truths of Scripture. And sometimes people are just simply mistaken. They've misread. They've misunderstood. They've heard things taught to them that are simply not true. There's a variety of reasons why people can be considered weak in the family of God. Let me again make it clear. They are not weak about Jesus Christ being their Lord and their Savior. They're weak about the daily implications for living that out, how it impacts their life on a daily basis. Now, what he says here is fascinating. Do you you see the tendency that the weak have, their attitudes? This is where we're getting into their attitudes, okay? You you notice what their attitude tends to be? It's the tendency to, he says here, pass judgment. He's going to reference this twice, to pass judgment on others who do what they don't feel the freedom to do. So they, they look at other believers doing things that they don't think is, is right before the Lord, even though it is okay that they're able to, and, and instantly they're thinking in their mind, how can you do that? That's not okay. That's, that's definitely not pleasing to the Lord. I mean, I don't understand how a Christian could do something like that. Have you heard that before? And again, we're not talking about things that are abundantly crystal clear in Scripture, okay? Like, when the Bible says something is a sin, it's a sin. We're not talking about things that are not debatable. We're talking about, especially in this instance, matters of custom or tradition or behavior that is just not quite as clear in Scripture. It's a little bit looser, so to speak. And so what he says here is that their tendency is to, is to pass judgment. And then he talks about the strong. You notice this? The strong, by the way, Paul puts himself in the category of the strong. It's also helpful to, to notice here, too, that Paul's not saying that, that someone's opinion or belief is right and someone um, is, is, is equally as right. He is actually saying there are things that are right even in secondary issues and things that are wrong. Paul will later in, this, uh, in the next passage put himself in the category of the strong. But the tendency, did you notice it here? The tendency of the strong, what do they tend tend to do? It's to despise the weak. You see, these are the people who are enlightened, but can often be elitist. So in other words, they're the people who, they're, they're like, like, we've got this whole faith thing figured out. We know what it means to follow Jesus. And they're just, they look down their nose at the weaker brother who's still like worried about what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do. And, and concerned about whether something is going to dishonor the Lord or not. And they look down their nose and say, you don't know what you're talking about. We know, we know, you don't know. And so their tendency is to just, psh, you know, these pathetic people, they don't know what they're doing, they're so weak. They look down on those. They practice their freedoms and liberties in Christ in a way that can do great damage, they can flaunt them, seek to humiliate those who don't feel the same way. So that's who they are. So here's the next question why are they fighting? Well, again, because they disagree on matters of opinion. Just look at the first verse there, "'As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions.'" Again, another translation for that is disputable matters, things where there can be some legitimate disagreement or the disagreement isn't consequential, it's just not that big of a deal. Somehow, secondary issues become primary, and this is what Paul is trying to guard against. And the specific issues he addresses first in 1 through 3 are about food, and then in 5 and 6, they're about days. So, you can see how this relates to the Jewish faith. The idea of food here is most likely referring to the Mosaic dietary laws, if you read the Old Testament, you'll come across those dietary laws. Usually, that's your time in Leviticus where you decide to quit your Bible reading plan. Right? She's like, man, like all of these things they're not allowed to eat and do. And like, man, I can't keep up with it all. I'll just get me to the New Testament. But all these Jews had grown up under this this Old Testament law where there were certain things they weren't allowed to eat. They they weren't allowed to eat certain kinds of meat and 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 it had to do with hooves and shells and all kinds of stuff. And and so so here's and and then potentially mix into there, maybe there's some some in in the pagan world, especially in Rome, a lot of the sacrifices to pagan gods, you wanna know what they would do with that meat? They would take it to the marketplace after it was sacrificed to a pagan, you know demonic God, they would sell it in the marketplace, and then so there's some maybe, maybe even Gentiles who are going like, wait a second, can we eat this meat that was, that was sacrificed to demons? Just, I don't feel right about this. And, and there's dispute about the days, and, and again, a lot, you go back to the Old Testament, and all of these festival days, and celebrations, and maybe specifically the Sabbath, where, where all of these things, the, the New Testament tells us they're shadows that point us to Christ. And so even Paul later in the New Testament will say, listen, they're all fulfilled in Christ, and so, so, so you actually don't have to celebrate them any longer, because the point was to point you to Jesus, and He's here. He's the one we now celebrate, and so these days, they, they actually don't matter. But here's these Jews, listen, here's these Jews in particular, maybe some Gentiles who were influenced by them, who who were just, they were indoctrinated with this stuff. It was a part of the fabric, the, the warp and woof of their everyday life, and now they're being told that they no longer have to abide by these things, and it's not like they can just flip a switch and change. It's so hard. I mean, from little kids, they were taught, this is sinful to do these things. So there's real tension here that you need to see. I mean, the, these, these Jews are watching Gentiles walking around eating bacon-wrapped bacon. And they're trying to feel like, they're like, oh, this, what do we do? And you know what they're saying? They're like, they must not love Jesus. And these Gentiles are walking around eating their bacon-wrapped bacon saying, like, are you kidding me? This is the meaning of life. <laughs> Don't you love what God has provided? And and, you know, what do people tend to do when they have these kind of differences? Well, if you put it in the context of the church today, you want what they do? That's it. We can't get along. Let's divide. So, down here, we're going to have the first church of meat eaters. And down here, we're going to have Grace Vegetarian Church. And my answer to that, listen, if God didn't want us to eat animals, then why did He make them out of meat? But but can you, like, so so listen, the point is, is that we can divide over things that are not essential, or, or, listen, we can do what God wants us to do, and we can fight for unity. We can learn how to love one another in the family of God, despite our differences and our disagreements. And I think this is incredibly relevant, because, let's be honest, there are many things that are disputable, matters, matters of preference, matters of opinion, that can divide the church today things that we argue about all the time. And again, it's not wrong to have these discussions and even disagreements and even kind of robust debates about things. That's that's okay. It's wrong if our attitude becomes like these attitudes where we begin to pass judgment on people who don't feel the way we feel or we begin to disdain those who do what we're not comfortable doing. Usually, secondary issues have to do, again, with methods of practice or methods, excuse me, or practices in the Christian life. At times, they can deal with lesser uh, doctrines that are are less clear um, in the Scriptures. And I just want to make it clear again, Paul never compromised on sin, okay? Don't look at this as some kind of a carte blanche. We never have to deal with difficult issues. We never have to confront error. That is not the case. You'd have to discard the rest of the New Testament in order to come to that conclusion. Paul was not afraid to correct. He was not afraid to confront but these are secondary issues. Let me give you some examples of this in the life of the church. Um, here's here's one. Um, we can have disagreements on prayer, can't we? Not that you have to pray. Okay, we can't disagree on that. We we all gotta, we gotta pray. But but let me just flash this out a little bit. Like like when should you pray? How many times a day should you pray? <laughs> For how long should you pray? Some of you are like the shorter the better. Do you pray before? How many of you pray before a meal? Show of hands. Before a meal. Okay, you're really holy. How many of you pray after a meal? How many pray after a meal? It's like, yeah, a couple. A couple. You're more holy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know why I say that? Because there's precedence in the, in, in the book of, of, uh, of, of Deuteronomy that you pray after a meal, right? Like you eat this big, like not before the meal, you eat the meal, and that's when you're really thankful. You're like, oh, that was amazing. Thank you, Lord you see, the Bible's not clear on like all of the answers to those questions. What about about this? What about the gathering of the church? Like what time should a church gather? At what time? Some people say in the morning, some people say in the afternoon, some people have no choice. (laughs) (laughs) What about the liturgy of the church? Like, how many times should we pray in the middle, of, in a service? How, how long of a Scripture reading should we have? How many songs should we sing? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, these are, these are things that are not clear. The Bible doesn't tell us these things. How about, how about like, a coffee ministry? Should, should a church have coffee or no coffee after a service? That one's really easy. Coffee is the obvious answer. If you love Jesus. But you see, the point is this, is that there are lots of things that have been disputable in the life of the church, music style throughout the history of the church. Can a Christian go to the movie theater? It was a massive debate at one point in the life of the church. Can Christians even own a TV? Can you go to Disney and still be a Christian? Sorry, I had to throw Disney back in there. How, how you raise your children. How you raise your children, right? Like this is a massively debatable issue. If you really want to honor the Lord, you'll homeschool your children. If you hate Jesus, you'll put Him in the public school. and the public school, parents are like, don't you, don't you want to reach the world and prepare, like prepare your kids to face the world and be a light to the world? I mean, we really love Jesus. Christian school is like, we're the true remnant. Can you drink beer and be a Christian? The Bible doesn't say alcohol is a sin, it says that light beer is a sin. I'm just kidding, that's for another time. <laughs> Christians disagree on all kinds of things. What Bible translation to use, the doctrine of election, on baptism, on the age of the earth, on politics, on parenting, on church governance styles, on the color of the carpets and the architecture of the building. Christians disagree on stupid things, and they disagree on important things. These things here are of secondary nature. They're not unimportant, but they're not of primary importance. So, the critical… Listen, this is critical counsel for our contentious age, okay? Okay? what Paul gives us here. How are we to handle the diversity of opinions and fight for love and unity in the body of Christ? Let me say that again. This is the point of the sermon. Don't miss this. How are we to handle the diversity of opinions and fight for love and unity in the body of Christ? Paul assumes that church members can live in peace without compromising their convictions. We can get along with each other without agreeing on everything. Paul tells us that our attitude is of first importance, and in many ways, it is the first key to fighting for unity. And so here, I just want to give you quickly, I know it's been a long introduction, but it's been most of the sermon, okay? I want to show you three principles that shape our attitude of love even when we disagree with each other. Three principles that shape our attitude of love even when we disagree with each other. Remember, Paul is launching out of this picture of what it means to love one another in the family of God. And even as he says that, he knows that Christians can get at each other and attack each other and despise each other and pass judgment on each other. And so he's like, no, 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 love must dominate the family of God and unity must be fought for. Here's the first way we fight for this. We're both saved by the same gospel. Listen, this is the first principle to embrace. You want to shape the way you view somebody else? Here's what you think through when you're having a disagreement. The first thing you ought to think is this. We are both saved by the same gospel. Uh, this is verses 1 through 3. I just want you to notice again what he says at the, end, at the beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 3. He says, as for the, the one who is weak in faith, look at these words right here. Welcome him. And then look at the end of verse 3. He says this. Let or just the beginning of verse three. Let not let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Look at the reason. Here's the reason: for God has welcomed him and others. Can you see the logic there? You welcome one another because God has welcomed them. And it implies this idea of welcome implies this acceptance. It's it's filled with warmth and kindness and genuine love. It's the same word that's used. Paul uses this when he writes to Philemon. Philemon had a runaway slave who had been saved, and now he wants to. You know, Paul's sending him back, and you know what Paul says to Philemon? He said instead of like being angry and rebuking him, you know, what he says welcome him as you would welcome an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus uses the same word in John 14:3. Remember what He says to His disciples? He's going away to prepare a place for them. And in John 14, 3, when He promised His disciples, He said this, He would welcome them into His presence in heaven. This idea of acceptance and embrace and warmth and love is packed into this term. Paul uses it here to remind us that God has welcomed us all the same way in the gospel. Every one of us has been welcomed and accepted by God the same way in the gospel. And theologically, God's acceptance of us is synonymous with our justification. That means to be made right with God. The term acceptance, by the way, is thrown around often very loosely in Christian circles. You know, some people believe that God accepts us unconditionally, that God's just, God's just gonna accept everybody, doesn't matter. We're all going to be welcomed in eventually into the family of God, and certainly there is a sense in which the love of God is unconditional, but I want to be very clear. God's acceptance of us is not unconditional. It's not. God's acceptance of us depends on our repentance and our faith in Jesus Christ. God invites all of us, but we are welcomed only, only when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is how you enter into the family of God. And I love twice in, in this chapter, in verse 10, he calls us brothers. Brothers, you're part of the same family. And he's reminding us that we all enter into this family the same way. And, and in this family, God has no favorite children. And, and maybe just as you've been thinking through this already, maybe this is a time for you just to consider this question. Have, have you actually been welcomed by God into the family? Are you a part? Are you a part of God's family? And legitimately search your heart. Have you Have you repented of your sin? Have you recognized your sin? Have you, have you confessed before, God, God, I, I am a sinner, I am helpless, I have rebelled against you, I, I, I tried so hard, Lord, to, 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 to earn my way into your good grace, to just be a good person, but Lord, I'm not a good person, I'm a sinner in desperate need of your saving grace, and God, I realize, I realize that the only way I could be saved from, from my sin is if you came down from heaven to earth, if you came down to rescue me out of my sin, if you, if you would die in my place and take the penalty I deserve, if you, oh God, would rise from the grave and conquer my greatest enemy, sin and death. See, only if you believe that, if you repent of your sin and believe that message, only can you be welcomed by God, only then, only then. But God, listen, he he throws his arms open to you in the gospel, and he says, I long to welcome you. So if you have not yet been welcomed by God, like today, now, now is the moment where you just say, Lord, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. I believe in you. Rescue me. And then watch as God begins to pour His Spirit out in your life to give you a new heart with new desires and new passions, and the evidence of your faith is put on full display as as your life is radically different than it once was. You see what Paul is doing here in this, this very beginning section? He's appealing to us once again by the mercies of God. And he says, so then regarding the weak, because of the gospel, because of the mercies of God, regarding the weak, listen, those of you who are strong, guess what you're called to do? You must accept the weak. Welcome them. And by that, he means embrace them wholeheartedly, not simply tolerate them. Don't make them jump through certain hoops to earn your love, to earn your acceptance, just like you didn't have to for God's love and acceptance. God has welcomed them. The weak matter, Jesus bought them with the same blood that He bought you. I love what John Stott says again. He says this, they are to neither, to be neither ignored nor reproached, nor at least at this stage, this is so helpful, nor at least at this stage are they to be corrected, but rather to be received into fellowship. Acceptance doesn't mean we embrace their position. It means we continue to love and serve them. And we do so for the right reasons. Did you catch the qualification in verse 1? But not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, we don't like, yeah, come on in so I can fix you. Come on in so we, we, we got a debate table set up over here so we can just go after all of your false doctrine, all of the things we disagree with. It's just no, that's no, not why we accept people. That's not what the gospel does. Whenever we disagree with fellow believers, it's a good time to remind ourselves, just just flip in your Bible over to chapter 15, and look at verse 7. This is how he's going to end this entire section, but I love this, because the book ends. The book ends for the whole thing. The gospel is the book ends, okay? Don't miss this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. (laughs) Our acceptance of one another should never be determined by disputable matters. We've always said this in our church, we major on the majors, we minor on the minors, but in all things love. We do not have to agree, but we do have to respect the individual, their right to hold differing opinions, and we must avoid despising and judging those who hold to different opinions. How dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? You know, we often operate by the golden rule, don't we? Treat treat one another as we want to be treated, but let me give you a better rule, a better rule than that. This is a safer rule. Treat them as God treats them. Treat them as God has treated you, especially when it comes to the attitude. Man, this requires so much patience, doesn't it? To not have to fix people right away, to be slow and patient and gracious and kind, to realize people are at different places. It's okay. We don't have to rush to fix everything right away. Let me give you the second principle that shapes our attitude of love, even when we disagree. We're both serving the same Lord. Listen, we're both saved by the same gospel, but flowing right out of that is this reality. We're both serving the same Lord. And in in 4 through 9, he unpacks this. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He goes into the, again, the days. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, listen to this language here, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. I mean, I I didn't count how many times Lord is mentioned there, but you can kind of see the emphasis of the passage, can't you? We're both serving the same Lord. We have the same master. And you see the problem here? Especially the the problem for the weak in this context, calling into question the acceptance of the other person. That's what he means. When When they pass judgment, you're like, I'm not sure you're even saved. You're attacking the gospel when you do something like that, especially over these trivial issues. That's, that's the point. Again, these are not major uh, uh, Christian defining issues. And what Paul's saying is this: like, who are you to judge another man's servant? His master's opinion is the one that matters most, not yours. You're not his master; he doesn't answer to you. I mean, that's such a great principle when we disagree with somebody: like, you are not the master. You're not the Lord. And again, he he hits another disputable matter with the days, and we talked a little bit about about that already. But I want you to notice there, amidst this disputable matter, Paul's indisputable point here is this. People with opposing viewpoints on non-essentials can both be perfectly right with God. You see that? They can both be perfectly right with God. not their opinion is is equally as right. Don't don't confuse that. But their position and their heart before God is equally as pleasing to God. That's the point. Two of the most uh, famous Christians in the Victorian era in England were Charles Spurgeon. You've heard me quote from him quite often if you've been around here for any length of time. And, And another pastor by the name of Joseph Parker both of these guys were, were friends. Both were incredible preachers of the gospel. And early in their ministries, they actually, they fellowshiped quite a bit. They exchanged pulpits even back and forth from time to time. And then they had a disagreement. And the reports got into the newspapers. I mean, this is when Christianity was a big deal. And, and uh, it, like all through the newspapers, they were reporting this big disagreement. You say, well, what was this big disagreement? Here's what it was. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he attended the theater. That's good, right? That's good. You want to break friendships over that. Interestingly enough, Spurgeon smoked cigars, which are a practice that many believers would condemn. In fact, on that note, on one occasion, someone asked Spurgeon about his cigars and his, his smoking habits, and he said that he didn't smoke to excess, so they pressed him. They're like, well, what do you mean by excess? And he answered, no more than two at a time. <laughs> You're like, who's right in this situation? Perhaps neither, perhaps both, but I'll tell you this, they were both wrong in how they handled it. And that's the real question that Paul is getting at. Not that we don't have disagreements, how do we handle them? How do we treat one another? How do we respond when we have these disagreements? And one other thing that you need to draw from this section of the passage here is this, that if you are convicted that something is wrong, don't do it, okay? That's that's a clear biblical principle. If you're convicted that something is wrong, don't do it, even if other Christians are doing it. If your conscience doesn't, look what he says, let each one be convinced in their own mind. If you can't do it in faith, it's sin. And this is so important, you need to pay attention to this right here, okay? It's not that we are to be convinced that our way is the only way, but that our way is the best way for us in light of what we know right now, okay? That's a huge distinction. We are not to be convinced that our way is the only way. That's how we have this this infighting in the family of God that is unhelpful, unproductive, and it, it causes us to pass judgment on others and disdain others. What we need to do is be convinced in our own mind that our way is best for us in light of what we know right now at this moment. Your conscience may be bound. Listen, Christian, your conscience may be bound in an area that is less clear in the Scriptures, but you are not allowed to bind the conscience of other Christians where it is not clear. You're not allowed. Neither, listen, are you allowed, if your conscience is free, to trample on the conscience of another believer who doesn't feel the same way you you do. And Paul's going to deal with that in the next section. The person in this moment the one who's convinced in their own mind, is saying, this is the best way for me to honor Jesus. And I love that. Do you see how both people are trying to honor Jesus? They're just both trying to serve the Lord. They're both trying to honor the Lord. But you see, this is really, really important. This really comes down to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is highlighting in such a massive way. It's fascinating to look at Paul root his argument in the gospel, And his basic premise is that the entirety of the life of the believer is to be lived in service to Jesus as the Lord over every area of our lives, right? That's what he's pointing to. In every area, whether it's large or small, where it's even debatable, the whole point is this. You need to make sure you are striving to honor and serve the Lord. This, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is not just to believe the right things. Even the demons believe and shudder. To be a follower of Jesus means that you have submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that means that as you move along in the Christian life, listen, your life becomes progressively and increasingly more surrendered to Him. Every area. Every decision, every part of your life is brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You are seeking in every way to please your master. and this is why this is such a massive deal, because some of us in this room right now are sealing off certain areas of our life from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We just are. We're living as if, as if some of our lives can come underneath the lordship, but then some other areas of our lives, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe it's your family, your career, your finances, uh, your kid. I don't know what it is, but there's some area maybe in your life where you're just like, listen, Lord, you can have this part of me, but over here, I'm going to rule. And you're wondering why you're treading water in the Christian life. You know, you just, you're spinning your wheels, you're trying, you are trying You spend your life climbing the corporate ladder and everything's about money and possessions and, uh, or everything's about leisure and entertainment or what, whatever it might be for you. And you're like, why, why am I not loving Jesus more? Why, why is my, my affection for Jesus not where it ought to be? The reason is, is that you are sealing off an area of your life from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So here's the question some of you need to ask. And, and listen, here's why this is so important. Do you realize that in sealing off some of your life to the Lordship of Jesus, what you're actually doing is hurting yourself. You, like, you think, it's better if I handle this, and then the more you try to handle it, the more empty you feel, the more mess you make, and, and spiritually, listen, Your your affection for the Lord wanes. Your effectiveness in gospel ministry and gospel purposes for which you were designed and saved, they are minimized. And the joy in the Lord that you are intended to know and experience and live in, listen, it evaporates but you see everything in your life changes when you see, and listen, we all wrestle with this. There are times, I I see this happen all the time in my own personal walk with the Lord. I'll be walking along thinking everything's fine, and then I'll be looking like diagnostically at my spiritual life going like, wow, what's not firing? Why is this not firing all cylinders? What's going on? Why am I having these struggles? And inevitably, you know what God reveals to my own heart? There's this area of your life that you've tried to take back from my Lordship. And it's not until you get on your face before the Lord and you repent and you surrender it back to Him that you experience the kind of growth and affection and effectiveness and delight in the things of the Lord that God wants you to experience. Jesus is Lord. And that statement must be applied to every situation, every situation, every area of your life. Verse 8, look at this, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. And again, look at how he rooted it in verse 9, in the gospel itself. Do you, see, do you see how the gospel is to change every part of us? Even the most mundane questions of life relate to the reality of the gospel in our lives. you know, the best thing you can take away from this point is simply this. Instead of trying to be the Lord of somebody else's life, realize, realize that He is their Lord, you are not, and He is your Lord. Be more concerned about how you're seeking to serve and honor Him in every area of your life than you are about trying to manage those around you. Let me give you one final point. Final principle that shapes our attitude of love even when we disagree We'll both stand before the same judge. We'll both stand before the same judge. He says, verse 10, why why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? And I, I just want you to notice this language. I'm going to try to emphasize it so you pick up on it. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, he quotes from Isaiah here, as I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, look at this each of us will give an account of himself to God. Again, I love the language of brother here. Why do you, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? It reminds us that we're part of a family. But, but listen, I, I get it. Listen, in every family, it's easy for siblings to cross that line from simply being a, a sibling to being a judge, isn't it? Usually happens with older siblings. I can say that because I'm not an older sibling. But, but it's not exclusive to the older siblings. Let me make that clear. In fact, the youngest learn quickly from the older how to police behavior, don't they? I mean, it's not inc- uncommon in my house for our youngest to make clear not only what his elder siblings are doing wrong, but what he believes is the best punishment. <laughs> Mike, he'll come up and he'll tell us. You know, sister or brother, they're, they're doing this. I think they should go to their room for 20 minutes. <laughs> and you know what Paul is, is saying here? Stop trying to be one another's judge. Maybe you can hear God say this, get out of my chair. Get, get out of my chair. I am the Lord of the universe, and I am the judge of the universe, and you are not. We really need to take this to heart because there, there are some, look, in, in the Christian world, and maybe even some of you wrestle with this, who, who make it the mark of their, their ministry to determine where others stand before the Lord. You know, they become argumentative and quarrelsome, they're contentious about every little issue, and loved ones, we're just we're not called to be those kind of people. Beware, because you, you can quickly become like who you surround yourself with. Your friends and those you follow will in some ways determine your future. My, my advice is to surround yourself. This is, by the way, the, the advice of Proverbs. Don't, don't surround yourself with angry, quarrelsome, slanderous, violent people. Surround yourself with peaceful, loving, gentle people. And strive to be those people. And when you get into disagreements with brothers and sisters in the family of God, one of the things that you can do to to shape your attitude is simply remember that every single one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're not going to even account for for what your brother or your sister did or said. You guys are going to be like, hold on a second here. Can you just kind of run run down the list? Pull out your checklist of how, how they did. I really want to know what you think. No, we're going to stand before Christ alone. And the only thing that that we need to be worried about on that day is our life, the way we live for Him, the way we served Him, the way we sought to honor and glorify Him, and whether or not, let me say it again for some of you, whether or not you actually know Him. There is a judgment coming for those who don't know Jesus Christ, and it's devastating, and it has eternal consequences. But there is a judgment for believers We, by the grace of God, will not end up in eternal punishment for our sins because Christ has taken that punishment for us, but we will stand before what is called the Bema Seat. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Listen to what he says. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's on that day and in that moment where you will stand before Christ and all of your works and all of your words will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3, we won't, we won't go there, but it talks about how they'll be purified with fire. All of what we've done will be assessed by God and, and everything will be burned up except what was done for the motivation to please and honor and glorify Him. And if that isn't motivation to refrain from judging one another, I don't know what is. One thing we will certainly have to answer for when we stand before God, will be our judgmental attitudes towards others. But, Christian, isn't good news that the final judgment is up to God and not up to us? His evaluation will be perfect and righteous. Our reward will be exactly what we deserve, as will our brothers and sisters. So, let us be more concerned about how we handle ourselves, about our own attitudes whether or not they're pleasing to the Lord. These are the principles that shape our attitude of love even when we disagree with each other. And though some of the issues we argue over today in the church might be secondary, how we love each other in them is not. What we argue over may be secondary, how we argue is primary. What you extend to others reflects what you have received yourself from God acceptance, grace, and love. So, brothers and sisters, if God has welcomed you, if God has accepted you, if He has shown only mercy and grace to you, if He has loved you even when it wasn't deserved, then strive to display what has been extended to you. Continue to extend it to one another. Let's pray.